0: probably heard of the many types of PM, project managers, product managers, and even program managers. But did you also know that there is a PMM, product marketing manager? I wasn't quite sure what the responsibilities of one would be, so I reached out to Isaac Levin, principal product marketing manager at Elastic, and asked him to talk about his work. Enjoy the show. Hello friends, welcome again to the Workout item podcast. And uh, it's not a bad week when you get to talk to a friend and I'm talking to a friend today, Isaac Levin. Welcome Isaac to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. I'm really excited to chat with you. How are things? Things are
1: good. I mean, I've, uh, I've recently kind of changed jobs. Uh, so for the future machine, like this is being recorded at the end of October. Um, I'm one month and one half of month into my new job at Elastic um, where I'm kind of telling the developer story for one of our products. Um, for folks that probably do know me most, uh, I come from the Microsoft uh, mothership, just
0: like my friend who I'm talking to right now. So what actually drew you to Elastic? I have this, this starting question because when I talk to folks that listen to the show, they often have this dilemma. Do I go to a big company or do I go to a small startup? Do I do my own thing? What's your decision matrix for this? Like, how do you decide where to go? I mean, I think a lot of people in tech
1: know there's a couple of reasons why people leave tech or leave a company to join another tech company. Um, And I think for me, the one that stood out to me most was just opportunity. Uh, So with this new job, I'm taking on a bit of a broader scope as it pertains to telling the developer story from a marketing perspective, um, more than what I was doing in my previous role. And it just gives me an opportunity to interface with new teams in different ways, tell different stories, which um, is the reason why I'm in marketing, right? I I love telling stories. I love being able to interact with people in really meaningful ways. So just, again, I think the biggest one, at least for me, was just opportunity to make a bigger impact, if that is fair.
0: Yeah. And actually you read my mind because my next question is why marketing? So I know that based on your work at Microsoft and now Elastic, you care deeply about that field. Like what draws you into that?
1: I, for folks who know my backstory, I, I've been a developer, you know, my entire career. Um, and a few years ago, I decided to take this leap into technical marketing. But, and I think a lot of people think, okay, well, technical marketing, that still means that you need like a marketing background. I don't. I very much have a, a tech background. But I think one of the things that really drew me to this concept of working in marketing is I've always been somebody who really enjoys the storytelling of everything. So like, even when you're writing software, right? You're like, you're trying to tell a story that solves a problem with code and with marketing, it's the same thing except with words, right? And everybody that I work with, you know, whether they're in engineering or product management or marketing or developer advocacy, you know, it's all about telling stories using the medium that you choose, right? If you want to be a public speaker, if you want to blog, if you want to do podcasts like you do, it's all about, you know, finding different and interesting ways to resonate with your audience. Uh, and, you know, I think marketing gives you this, these insights to different areas of the business that you wouldn't typically think of in more technical roles, if that is fair to say. So
0: you can still be technical and in marketing.
1: I hope so, because I'm, I'm doing it. We'll find out very soon, like if this was a whole... Uh, come up of not a good idea, but I think, yeah, at least, and I think people probably have differing opinions on, on if technical people should be marketers or they should be developer advocates, or they should be just in the product group advocating um, for their products there. I think from my perspective, in my career as a marketer, I've worked with mo- more people that were very strong in marketing and probably not as strong technically. And that's fine because my skills are very heavily in the tech area. And I need to lean on people with marketing skills all the time. And I think one of the things that's really, really important to call out is that when you're in technical marketing, it's about speaking to developers using mediums that typical technologists don't really, like, use a lot, right? Like, it's about... you know, writing really, really eloquent, like blog posts and release notes. And these things are done by technical folks, but it's, I guess the, the level of awareness that comes from a marketing um, push is, is a, a bit more, is a bit different, if that's fair. I think, you know, all of these things kind of plug in together to make like a, a greater motion right and it's just marketing is just a really big piece of that which i've been able to get real enjoyment out of
0: what does this work entails because you're talking about kind of communicating to technical audiences and using the language that those audiences resonate with what does that entails kind of all up because when i think marketing to me the thing that pops into my mind is like oh these are the people that work on putting the right advertisements in the right places to make sure that There's awareness of my product and there's awareness of the service, but there's so much more to that. Tell me more about it. Yeah, I think
1: one thing that's very interesting about marketing specifically, uh, and you're going to hate my answer because my answer is very much, it depends or your mileage may vary. But I think, you know, in marketing specifically, there's all these different practices that you can adopt as a marketer, right? Like you can be really, really interested in demand generation and social media, right? So being able to generate um, demand for contents being built by other people, right? You know, there's also, uh, you know, marketers in different spaces. The one that I focus on is product marketing. So what that means is that my goal is to speak to a particular persona or audience about a particular product and have it really resonate with them. Basically, you know, Dan, I want people to read some content or absorb some asset that I've created. I want them to go and try out the product. Like that's my goal. I want them to be so excited because of the story they've read or the story they've seen or, or what have you to really get meaningful. They get the value out of it. Right. And I think to back to your original question is what do I do? Right. It, I, that's a very much, it depends too. Like I've done everything from author, blog posts, uh, um, do public speaking, like speaking at meetups, speaking at conferences. Um, when I was at Microsoft previously, like I, I was one of the key people for developer keynotes. So, Uh, You know, there's this keynote piece to it, too, or I guess talking to audiences at a grand scale. Um, And a lot of the work that I've been doing recently is around analyst relationships, right? So figuring out ways to effectively tell our stories to analysts that can go and, you know, ungrade us in particular areas of our business that, you know, whether it's good, bad or indifferent, ways that we can really, I guess, attract customers or get customer adoption, um, so I guess the, the answer, short answer to your question is it depends. My days are very different, but I think my days are probably a, equating to lots of product managers. Um, if you want to go down that route, lots of meetings, lots of um, you know productivity tools like your Google Workplace of the world, your Microsoft 365 of the world, living in those tools. Um, I get to write a little bit of code every now and then. Um, definitely not as much if I was somebody who was technical, uh, but I still find opportunities to you know, scratch the itch whenever I need it.
0: By the way, for folks that don't know, you were instrumental in putting together the Build Keynote, right? This is the one that was with Scott Hanselman.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, that's probably uh, whether, you know, unfortunate or not, you'll have to ask somebody, you know, my claim to fame, right? I was a, a meme for a moment on the internet. Um, but yeah, so one of the great things that I got to do when I was um, doing my previous job at Microsoft was, I got to be really instrumental in how we talk to developers in keynotes, right? Um, you know, I was a small part of the build keynote, not this past build, so build 2021, but I was build 2020. I, I wrote a little open source app called Presence Light that was used in that um, particular keynote. Um, and for this build, for the one in 2021, um, I had a more of a, a meaningful role. Basically I, I worked, you know, directly with, you know, The other marketing teams, the other product marketing teams, the business, um, production companies, talent, talent being the Scott Hanselman, Felicia Shaw, Abel Wang, and, and Leslie Richardson's of the world to be able to really tell a story in a different way, because I don't know about you, but I'm really tired of all of these, uh, these presentations where it's slides and then demo and then slides and then demo and then slides and then demo and not to knock the folks that are doing that really successfully. It's about new ways to, to grab audience attention because let's, let's face it like if you go to build now with are ignite or any of these other big events, you know, reinvent or whatever. And if it's a virtual event, nobody's taking their day off to watch sessions, right? People are at, people are, people are maybe watching them like five minutes at a time in their spare time and I think that's really really challenging for content creators because you want to have as many eyes as possible for as long as possible and unless your content is is really really um, innovative and draws you in like you, you risk the opportunity of just people not you know are hitting stop or hitting you know X on the browser right and that's not good for anybody because there's some grateful people our, there's some really thoughtful conversation that could be had from that. So yeah, that was that was kind of our our goal, and you know I think based on the overall sentiment that I saw, I think we did a pretty good job there. So something that I'm super proud of, super proud of. Don't know if I really am if fired up about being a meme for like a day, but I mean that's I guess that comes with the territory.
0: Was it the the six reactions of Isaac?
1: That yeah, was which yeah. one are
0: you? I remember that. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was fun.
1: Uh and it was kind of like a last minute thing to have me actually be on screen. Scott Hanselman who was kind of the 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 MC of that keynote. He and I have a very interesting relationship because I kind of am a villain to him a little bit. Um and I think that played well into the whole you know the motif that they came across the entire keynote, right? like somebody who was just not happy all the time. I want people to know I am happy some of the time. It's not just, it's not just, uh, there was some truth to what I was doing. Like, to be completely honest, we did, that was a nine hour shoot, like in a theater on Microsoft campus. And it was pretty exhausting, but it was, it was so much fun. Like, honestly, probably one of the, my favorite things I've ever done in my career.
0: So I'm hearing a lot. The theme here is creativity. You have to be creative to deliver kind of the message around the product. So now- I want to ask the next question, which is, there's so many roles that supposedly deal with this aspect of product promotion and raising awareness, including what you called out earlier, which is developer advocacy. How do you rationalize between the two? Like what's developer advocacy versus product marketing? Oh, this, I'm probably
1: the worst person to ask this question because I, sometimes I struggle with being able to effectively describe what I do in product marketing. Um, I, I will say this, right? whether your title is developer advocate or not, you are a developer advocate if you talk to developers, right? So whether you're an engineer, whether you're a product manager, a project manager, whether you're a product marketing manager, whether you're a developer, whether you're in sales or technical sales and you're trying to figure out ways to get your customer excited about things, like that is what developer advocacy is. I'm not knocking people to have developer advocacy titles. I'm just saying that developer advocacy is something that's substantially broader than a title. Um, But typically, and this might just be my perception of how developer advocates are treated or handled in large organizations, is that developer advocates are very public figures slash influencers that they speak at conferences, they blog, they're on social media, and their goal is to drum up excitement, Right. Um, and that's the core part of the job. And again, using the iceberg effect, there's, that's 10% of what they do. And then the 90%, you don't you never see in product marketing, it's a bit different. So in product marketing, everything is very calculated because at the end of the day, you want to make sure that your resources are being spent in the most efficient way to garner promotion for your products. Right. And something as simple as a blog post, there's a lot of effort put into a blog post. Um, from, especially from the marketing side, it goes through way too many hands to be completely honest. And sometimes I'm envious of developer advocates, at least my friends that are developer advocates, because they have this opportunity to be very creative and, and write blog posts and do live streams and do all these things that are, you know, I guess outside of typical, like what you would say is quote unquote work. Um, and they're able to do it in a flexible way with a lot of autonomy. And there's, there's something to that, I think. But I do think that there's there's definitely a role of developer advocacy in any role that talks to customers or talks to developers in general, whether they're at enterprise customers, whether they're in the community, whether they're new and upcoming students, what have you, right? Like, it's all about trying to relate to people.
0: Yeah. Don't lock yourself to the title, right? Because a lot of people kind of zero in on that part to be like, oh, I'm a developer advocate and I'm not a developer advocate. But in reality, it's a little bit of everything.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I think from my observation, again, like this is just my two cents of the matter, right? And this is obviously pre-COVID life, right? I think there was probably an expectation for developer advocates to do a lot of travel. That's probably not 100% true at every company, but for most of the big companies, if you're a developer advocate, you're on a plane a lot. Um, Product marketing, that's not as true. Um, Doesn't mean that I don't get an opportunity to speak at events and things like that, but it's not a core principle of the job. Um, Where else I've at least... At Microsoft and even at Elastic where we have a developer advocate community, you know, it's very much like, okay, go to an event, drum up support, speak if you have the opportunity to speak. And yeah, I guess it just really depends on what you want to do. So I guess to the meta point is like, what kind of jobs, like I want to tell stories. Like what kind of jobs should I get? Should I look for developer advocacy jobs? Should I look for product marketing jobs? Should I write, look for any job, right? I think at the end of the day, if you're looking for developer advocacy jobs, just be aware that what you see a developer advocate do is a very, very small piece of what they do. You know, it's flat. Like a lot of stuff you see in public is very flashy. It's exciting, but I can tell you from my experience working with developer advocates, not all of it is super exciting and flashy. Um, Some of it is not exciting, not flashy, painful. Um, and that's just part of the entire machine that goes into putting together good products and good stories.
0: Tell me how off base I'm here, but what I'm also hearing is when we think about the difference between product marketing and advocacy, advocacy seems tactical where you have to do these things to you know showcase a feature or showcase a new release versus product marketing, which is more strategic where you have to think about how you position a product. How do you make sure that Long-term, there is an avenue to say, oh, yeah, by the way, we're competing with X, Y, and Z, and it's actually in this segment of the market and not this one. Is, is that a good interpretation? I think so. I think to be, a, you know,
1: honestly, I, I imagine there's some, might be some people in developer advocacy that are thinking that we're a bit trivializing the work they do. But I, I, I think that there is something to that where it's, you know, you want a superhero to show up out of nowhere and just do exactly what they do best, right? And developer advocates are those kind of people, right? Tech influencers are really powerful. And they get they can get word they can get word out and they get messaging out very, very quickly. I think one of the things that's that differs between the developer advocacy that we're talking about from traditional companies like a Microsoft, for instance, and in product marketing from a Microsoft perspective is that we work in tandem because for the most part, developer advocates are focused very, very intently on experiences, right? Whether that be customer experiences, new uh, developer experiences, existing community experiences, and they take that feedback because they are community champions, right? Let's call, you know, I think community champion is a far better, I guess, title for developer advocate than developer advocate is. That's my personal opinion, right? Um, And in marketing, there's a lot of other nuance too that's, completely outside of like championing, right? Like go to market, phrasing, making sure that you're, you know, you're writing copy in a way that really is going to develop leads, things that plug into sales plays, things that plug into partner plays. Like these are all sorts of things that I guess go hand in hand with product marketing and not to say that some developer advocates don't do these things, but their job is very much to drum up excitement because that's what they're best at, right? Um, I sh- And shout out to all my developer advocate friends. I'm not downplaying all the great work you do. I'm just saying, this is what I think is the difference. Um, I actually at one point in time thought that I would be a good developer advocate. And then I kind of decided that maybe traveling a lot wasn't super interesting for me. So I kind of look for other opportunities to tell stories in, in a meaningful way. So that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm here in more product marketing.
0: You started your career as a developer. Why the switch? Yeah. Well, so I I alluded to a little bit earlier,
1: I think one of the things I've always liked telling stories, right? You know, whether I'm writing software or whether I was speaking at events, I just enjoyed like that interaction, like that's that storytelling aspect of the work that I was doing. And then I just decided one day, like, I don't want to ship software anymore. Like, I don't want to be like somebody, somebody's, I don't want to be depended upon to like ship software in a way that was like pressure. Right. And I started looking for opportunities. Like how can I write code still as a part of my job, but not ship software. Right. Uh, And I think, you know, I came across a lot of like, you know, my last job before I kind of made the switch was in um, consulting. Like I was a, before I was a product marketer at Microsoft, I was a consultant at Microsoft. Um, Like I used to tell people I was a customer aligned developer advocate, which wasn't what my title was. Um, but I didn't write code, but I was very technical and I had to speak to customers in a very technical way that kind of led me to this. Well, man, I can still be technical without writing code for a day job. And that's what really interested me. Um, I don't know if it's because I don't like the stress of shipping code, or I didn't, didn't like the politics of shipping code. I just decided one day, like, I don't really enjoy doing this anymore. Um, so I kind of made a decision to not ship code anymore. Um, I'd be very surprised in the future if I do ship code um, as a job, I ship code in my spare time, which I think is funny, but I think, uh, I just didn't really enjoy the, it towards the end of it, like project work, if that makes sense. Right. Um, which was a lot of the work that I was doing kind of before,
0: um, I made the switch. How was that transition going from engineering to product marketing? Like what helped you kind of cross that chasm between the two? Yeah,
1: I, I think at least in my experience, it was, Probably harder than I expected because I just, and this is not a fair thing to say. I thought that marketing was kind of going to be an easy thing to do. Like, oh, I can, I can, you know, write fairly good technical articles. I'm, I'm a fairly good public speaker. I, I can write blog posts like this probably won't be hard. And what I found out is that I have huge gaps in my knowledge of what marketing actually is. And it took a long time for me to realize, oh, like all of these different things, they like, just had to fit together perfectly or it just falls apart you know and i think that was really challenging for me initially um also full disclosure like i wasn't very good at powerpoint or google slides so you know having to learn those skills was something that kind of stretched me um, but i think in general with this overall goal of like using creativity to build interesting content was kind of like a guiding light it's like as long as you have the right people around you, and in my situation, I had a very good support system, managers and mentors, to let me fail and not eat it, right? Like, I think that's one of the most important things is any, any career change is that you need to have people around you that are going to allow you to kind of fall face up. I've, I use this phrase a lot, right? Like, you know, we don't want to be put in positions where we fall down and it's just ruined right? We definitely want to fall face up so there's not a mess, right? And I think that's really, really impactful to think about, right? We can fail. It's important to fail all the time, but falling in a way or failing in a way that allows you to jump back up and dust off and not really have a bunch of problems, right? I think that's, you know, that's at the heart of it, what's really important.
0: So the interesting part here that you mentioned too is the support network. How do you get that? Because imagine that it's somebody that's listening to this they're new, they're in college or they're starting their first job and they're thinking about potential future transitions. But how do you build the support network from scratch where you have people that will help you throughout your career? Uh, I think you have to be, and this probably isn't fair to say, but I can
1: only speak for me, right? You have to be a little bit of an extrovert. You have to be okay with cold calling people. I remember I used to just randomly message people when I worked at Microsoft on Teams, like just randomly message them. Right. And I know that's a culture that, or that's a a way of thinking that not a lot of people are comfortable with because everybody wants to communicate in different ways. But I think one of the things that really I saw is that I thought of every single person that I talked to as as a potential catalyst for me to be able to do my job better. Right. And if you go about your introduction or the conversation in a way that's like, Let, let me use all the great skill that you have to make me a better marketer or a better engineer or a better human being in some cases, right? Like most people respond very, very well to that because they meet like, oh, you think what I'm doing is good? Well, let me tell you about these things. And then as you grow a relationship with a mentor or a manager, they'll warn you of pitfalls they've fallen into. Because I think for the most part, I think a lot of people, they see themselves in other people. Like even if you have nothing in common, I think a lot of us in general share a lot of the very, a very, there's like tropes that are followed through any person, right? And, you know, whether they're really minuscule or they're larger, I think we all can kind of relate to each other in some way. And it's about finding what you relate with people on. And that's how you build really strong relationships. So it's it's very much a relationship game, right? You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable trying to form those new relationships. Cause I don't know if you knew, like having friends is hard as an adult, like building, building friendships is hard as an adult. So when you're an adult, you're like, well, when I was like, like you watch your kids and you, they run up and just talk to random people as an adult, there's all this weird social contract about like, Oh, like, what if they don't like me? What if they think I'm weird? What if they have nothing in common with me? And these are all things that we just need to bat away. Because I'll tell you what, like some of my best friends are people that like, literally, you would see us next to each other, it's like, how are you friends with that guy? Or that gal? Or that person? And I'm just like, we connect in some way, we have nothing in common, but we have the same sense of humor. We maybe uh, we, we think about things a particular way. And that's honestly, what it's all about.
0: I feel like the hesitation with cold outreach to other people usually can be around the fact it's like, well, they're gonna think that I'm looking for something to benefit me. But the reality is that a lot of people should just reach out to learn, learn about their job, learn about the product they're building, right? Uh, it's, It's scary to make the first step because, hey, guess what? Nobody's going to be reaching out randomly to you as a new employee and saying that, like, yeah, let's set up like a recurring one on one to talk about the stuff, other than, you know, your manager. Yeah. No, it's, it's very funny
1: because um, inside baseball, like, I do a very similar thing that Den does. Like, I have a, he's actually been a guest on my show. Like, I have a, a weekly live stream slash podcast where I just talk about tech and open source with people. And what I found out very quickly is like, man, I'm going to run out of friends to like ask a favor. So I have to be, okay with reaching out to random people that I follow on online or people that I come across that I find are very interesting and say, Hey, do you want to talk to me? I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am. Do you just want to talk for like an hour? And honestly, like the response from people is, has been amazing. Like I think people in general, like they want to talk to other people to share passions as they do. And me, I'm talking to people about open source and tech and just general, like, you know, being in the tech industry, people love talking about that stuff. Um, because I think that is one of the things that we can relate to each other. Like all of us are trying to navigate this tech industry in a way that's going to bring us the most joy. It's, it's been a very interesting experience, like just cold call or not cold call, cold tweeting people. Hey, do you want to be on a live stream? I see that, uh, I follow you on Twitter and you don't follow me on Twitter, but that's okay. Right? Like you'll respond to me and talk to me. It's very much an exercise in like, am I okay with not being responded to?
0: It's like, you know, being rejected sometimes, whether it's for a job interview or for something. it's, It's just be okay with getting an answer that's no or there's no answer. And, you know, I just remember the same thing with this podcast. Funnily enough, it's that's how you get the best guests, right? You reach out to people that are amazing at what they do and you ask them for, you know, tell me about the stuff that you do. This is not an attempt to, you know, put you in the hot seat and get some controversial thing. No, it's like, talk about the stuff that you're good at. Talk about the stuff that you care about. And that's what we're here. Yeah. And
1: one of the things that's very interesting about what I do, and I don't know if, if your process is the same, but I tend to not want to have any prep at all when I talk to people. Uh, and I also don't want to know like a lot, of, like the people that I don't know, I really don't want to learn more about them. I want to learn about them on stream or on like while recording because from my experience, uh, I think people are the most genuine when they're being asked a question for the first time. Not to say that it's not good to like practice, practice stuff, but I think at least in my experience, I've gotten some really, I've had some really interesting conversations that I have a feeling people would have not if they they wouldn't have signed up for those conversations beforehand. Not to say that I put people in uncomfortable situations, but you know, I talk, I, I talked about, you know just all sorts of different things that people wouldn't probably sign up for speaking about, you know, over an hour long segment, right. If that's fair, I don't want to give too much away because there's, you know, the, I, I do have a show to promote eventually. Right. So little, little te- little teaser. If you want to learn more, maybe this, these w- weird anonymous things that Isaac's talking about, you can check it out sometime coffee and source.com. There's a podcast on all the podcasting things it's on, youtube i stream on twitch linkedin facebook it's it's i mean i'm trying to make it everywhere um and i think you know when you were a guest on one thing that i I told you is i don't do this for anybody like i have like i get like 20 viewers a hit like i do this for myself because i enjoy conversations like this because i feed off of people's passion um so it's been really enjoyable for me to like learning other perspectives too like i've talked to developer advocates. I've talked to hardcore engineers. I've talked to people who are in sales. I've talked to people in business planning and, you know, it's all the conversations are different, but they all have one theme, right? Like people are excited to talk about the things they love. And like, that's an easy hour long conversation.
0: Also tying into our conversation around product marketing and advocacy. This is the part where the best advocates, the best folks that can raise awareness of the product is to see the passion with which they're talking about it, right? Like It's completely different when you see somebody talking about, hey, go install this SDK and build something with it. And they put some image on Twitter versus somebody that says, oh my gosh, I use this SDK to build this Lego robot and look how cool it is. And you're like, wow, this person cares about this. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm gonna
1: put you a little bit in, in front of the camera. Like some of the things that you post on Twitter, like they get me very excited right? Like, you'll post like a screen capture of you doing something. I'm like, Oh, I want to do that. That seems really cool. And that's what we're really looking for, right? Like, because honestly, we we live in a we live in a world where if you got five minutes of fame, like, that's more than you could ever ask for. Like, you know, news site, the news cycle is so short now. And the attention stands for people are so short, is that you really want to figure out ways to really resonate with people talking, you know, even going back to like, when we did the build keynote, right? We just wanted people to watch it for more than five minutes. Like that's all we really wanted. So it's they. It's about, you know, trying to keep the eyes on things as long as possible and not coming off in like a phony way. Like, gen- like being genuine is really important to me too.
0: And the keynote as the example, I just remember watching it nonstop. Like I could not unglue myself from the screen because I was like, this is so good. This is so, it's funny, it's informational. And I think this is what stood out about it, that it's not, it doesn't come across as we're selling you on the product versus here's a bunch of people that deeply care about what they're talking about. They're showing us demos. They're showing us how they would do this. You know, we had like, what was like a colorful cube that they were using on stage to like, right. It's like, which keynote is gonna show you that? Yeah, I mean,
1: we'll see if that is copied in the future. I think that there's definitely, I don't know if that exact premise will ever be done again. Um, Like that sort of mockumentary style, office styled sort of show. Um, But I do think one of the things is that people need to understand that like going outside of like typical comfort zones is really, really important, right? And again, like we were very, very fortunate. We had a great cast of people like Scott Hanselman, you know, to call him out, like, not a lot of people are going to do what Scott Hanselman wants to do. So I think he's uh, exceptionally um, capable of doing a lot of things that uh, that a lot of people don't expect of him. And I think that's one of the reasons why people pay so much attention to him. I think one of the things too, that's really important to call out is that, you know, even if you fail miserably, like say, for instance, some some other company wants to do like a, a really weird session, right? Like, I can't think of one on the top of my head, but I think one of the things like a comedian car is getting coffee style. That was like, one. it's like, Oh, why don't we do that? Like driving around in a car and somebody's in a si- somebody's in the side, like on a laptop doing demos. And I thought that was a really stupid idea, but also would be kind of funny. But like, if you have this idea and it fails miserably, like at least you tried, right? Like what's the saying, right? You, you don't make a hundred percent of the hundred sh- percent of the shots you don't take. Right. Like that's, you know, I'm always interested in, trying out new things and that's one of the reasons why i like marketing so much is because you do have all this flexibility within reason right and if you have good management that agrees that things are good the things are worth going to then it ends up being really fun like again that keynote that you saw was powered by marketing and product management and engineering and developer advocacy, it was all these teams together, but marketing was the owner of
0: it. It seems like you're doing quite a few things. And with that, I do want to zoom out a little bit and ask about your early career. How did you get started? What brought you into the tech space to begin with? Yeah, I can I can give you an abridged
1: version or a longer version that's probably more in, in, in entertaining. Um, so I was always really into you know fiddling with stuff, like taking apart stuff, putting it back together. Um, I graduated college, uh, graduated high school in 2004. So the, the home PC market was pretty well defined when I was in high school. Um, I got a high school, I got, a, my parents did a comp- bought a computer on layaway when I was a sophomore. It went into my room. I took it apart day two without knowing how to put it back together. My dad says, you better put that computer back together. And, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to know how things work. And that transitioned really quickly to me having this interest in you know html css and javascript like being able to build websites i think everybody kind of sees building websites as a potential entry point um, to getting started in tech and i just kept on going from there like um, you know for my senior project i built a computer um I, when i went to college i really wanted to be in technology i started out in computer science i got kicked out of the computer science department for cheating so i switched over to information systems uh and I think that better um aligned with my interest of like solving problems and in a technical way. Um, you know, I can talk more about getting kicked out of the computer science department of my school if anybody has interest, but I think the long and short of it is uh I just got really bored and I would just figure out ways to not do things um in malicious ways, unfortunately. But I mean once I went over to information, so everything just clicked and I just coasted through that, got a job. Uh, d- developer job right out of college and kind of went straight from there. Did like line of business apps for a while and then got into consulting and then eventually made my way to Microsoft and then into marketing and now I'm here. So my progression has very much been like developer, 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 consulting, which is still developing, but it needs a little bit more business sense, I guess, then you know, pivoting like a hundred degrees to more business focus with a technical twist.
0: So it's interesting that in some cases, the careers in tech being in product or marketing or advocacy you might not need to be a technical person to be successful at it like i know a lot of for example product managers that are non-technical and they're phenomenal at their job they're really good do you think that being technical helped you in what you're doing now and granted you work on developer products so i guess the answer is yes but do you see any kind of tangible direct benefits from saying because i'm technical i get to benefit from x y and z i think so at least for me personally i think also you have
1: to remember that i sought out opportunities to continue to be technical if i decided to search out jobs that didn't require me technical i probably would have been able to find them right i think i guess my two cents of it is is that it probably doesn't hurt especially if you're working in marketing for technology products to have an idea of what your customer's actually doing, right? That doesn't mean being able to write software, but having like a strong technical acumen doesn't need, like it doesn't require having engineering background, um, like being able to identify like technical use cases is a very important job in product marketing, right? Like who are all the personas or user types that exist for this particular feature that we're rolling out. Right. And again, like I personally enjoy reading, GitHub up issues and going through and looking at source code and stuff like that, but I don't have to, it helps me relate better to what I'm trying to talk about. Um, and I know I have a lot of counterparts that I guess are technical, but they don't have a technical background and they do it in completely different ways and they're just as successful. So I think the, I guess the long and short of it is if, if you want to be technical, it's never going to hurt you as long as, as long as it doesn't negatively affect the work that you're trying to do. If you're trying to pigeonhole technical things, maybe you're a a marketing manager for a tool that doesn't talk to developers at all, right? Maybe you're building some line of business thing and your customers maybe like Salesforce users or something like that, right? Like, and if you're marketing that and your end customer, your end user doesn't have any technical touch and you're trying to put technical things in there, you're just gonna, honestly, you're gonna irritate your, your people you're trying to market to, Right. Like I had this conversation all the time. It's like, you know, there's a, a healthy balance between being technical, too technical and, and not technical enough, right? Um, because as everybody knows, like developers, like they really want to know how things work. They need to rip the thing open, they need to look at the source code, they need to do all these things. And when you give them content that doesn't speak in a technical language, they just close immediately. Right. And to the the transverse of that, like you have business people or or non-technical people and if they start seeing like source code or like programming principles like they'll get out of there faster than you've ever seen right so it's about finding this healthy balance of how do you talk to particular people and that's one of the main reasons why i love talking to developers is every developer thinks about things a bit differently and you know, some are okay with a really, really deep level of technical knowledge. Others like, okay, show me the getting started as fast as possible. Show me how to get up and running as fast as possible. Other people want to hum and haw and dig really, really deep to understand if they really want to take forward, take something forward. And I love how the brains of different technical people work.
0: Oftentimes, it's not even about the technology. There is such no. a, in, I want to say kind of inertia to push and say, oh, use this programming language or this framework or this tool set and reality is like, it's about solving a customer problem. Technology doesn't matter as much.
1: Yeah, no, I mean there's definitely some thought in why do we why do we fight so hard with our religious wars around technology, right? When at the end of the day, we're trying to solve a problem. And You know, I see this all the time in the web space. It's like, do I use this JavaScript framework or do I use this JavaScript framework or do I use this CSS tool or like, or do I use this ID versus this ID? Like, these are all things, if you strip everything away, they don't matter. Like I like to use the the DevOps analogy, right? Like DevOps is very, very interesting to me because DevOps tooling has no real say in DevOps as a practice, in my opinion right like devops is all about a, a change in how people need to think to effectively ship software ship ideas right um, tools are very important don't get me wrong but like tools don't need to be thought of like in the first you know 17 phases of adopting devops across your organization right and i think a lot of people run into this issue where it's like okay we're going to use gitlab or github or azure devops or octopus deploy and it's like no why don't you take a step back and like figure out what you're trying to accomplish, and then eventually the tool will fall the tools will fall as they may. And I and is you can attest to this as somebody who's a, a developer, right, or an engineer. Like, how many times have you gone down this path of trying to like smash technology into this hole it doesn't fit into? Because you feel more comfortable with it, right? And there's there it's okay because you want to work with the tools that you're comfortable with. But if you're trying to consistently like jam square peg into round hole, like maybe you need to rethink what peg you're using.
0: Right. And especially in the modern days, because there's just so many options, you often forget that it's, you know, there could be more than one legit right answer for what you're trying to do. That's why programming languages exist,
1: right? Like if you could write the same solution, the same way in every programming language, there'd be one programming language, right? It's all about, you know, and just think about something like this, right? Like if you build a, like build a, Uh, application with a more functional, functional language, right. Versus one with this more object oriented, they're completely different ways of thinking. And we run into this, this habit all the time. it's like, okay, I know how to do this one particular thing the way I know how to do it. Let me try to make it work this way. And unfortunately, like you said, we live in a world where there's just too many options and a lot of people just get paralysis with the options. Right. So I think one of the interesting things to kind of circle all the way back about product marketing and developer advocacy and all these things is you want to be able to tell effective stories as to the why, right? Why do you want to use this product or this tool? Why do you want to do these things this particular way and come to solutions that actually resonate? Because they can tell you from firsthand knowledge, if you try to tell somebody to do something a way they're not interested in doing, they will never come back to you. And it's, that's just the way it is. And that's okay.
0: And on the other side, you also have things like gatekeeping where, you know, you're not a real programmer unless you code assembly, which is like, really, we're going to write web apps in assembly. Like, let's not kid ourselves. Like, nobody does that.
1: Yeah. I mean, for, so my wife does vinyl printing. So like, she's made me a few t-shirts and for a small amount of time, I was like, should I get a 10X developer shirt made? Like, and just walk around with it just to troll people. And I think, you know, it. there is unfortunately, like, the gatekeeping, and and I talk about this all the time on Coffee and Open Source, so I apologize. Like there's so much gatekeeping in technical communities that is really just to make people feel more comfortable with their own opinions, right? And one of my things that I love is like thinking about new ways to do things. So it's completely like counter to the argument. Don't get me wrong. I, prob- I gatekeep all the time in- unintentionally. But I think one of the things that we all can do better as people is, um, a friend of mine once said, it's not about a, like, it's not about building a circle. It's about building a, you, right. Always letting people come in, always letting ideas come in. And that way you'll never be stuck because you can get stuck in a circle. And it, I thought that was brilliant because at the end of the day, like the last thing we want to do is get stuck with with our, you know, particular mindset or the work that we're doing because it can lead to complacency, which me personally I have no interest in.
0: Throughout your career, you made a lot of hard decisions. You made transition decisions. You were talking about kind of your mentality stands out as somebody that kind of has this a more well-rounded view of where we are. Did you have any mentors throughout? your journey that kind of helped you answer these questions? Or was it something that you'd kind of discovered solo?
1: I, I really appreciate that you think that I'm well grounded. Um, I don't think that at all. I think I probably have a way too big of an ego. Um, but I think I was very fortunate because right when I started my first job, like I got sat down on a project next to like two people who had like 25 years of software development experience. One had written books for O'Reilly. And like, I just kind of learned how to navigate from them. And and then since then I've had a couple of mentors in my career that have stood out. Like one, I've interviewed on coffee and open source, my friend, Scott Addy. Um, He works at Microsoft. He's a PM for the Azure SDK. People people probably also know him from working on uh, docs for the dot for dot net. Like we worked together a long, long time ago. And then we didn't talk for like six or seven years. And then I randomly like saw that he was going to a Microsoft build event when I wasn't working on Microsoft, but I got, an opportunity to go to build and he and I just started talking and like, he was talking about all these things like open source technology and contributing and doing like this, this legwork for the next level of developers. And I just was like, that is it, this is the thing that I want to do. And ever since then, like he and I talk about these sort of things all the time. And I have a lot of other people that I have come in as mentors and for a particular use case and then leave. Right? Like, I think one of the things too, about mentors is really important. They don't need to be lifelong relationships either. Like you can have a mentor for a very small amount of time. Like I had a mentor that I reached out to him specifically when I just was trying to decide if I wanted to leave Microsoft or not. And he had like actual, like tangible like feedback for me and he and I had a working relationship, but I was just like, maybe I'll ask him because he's, I respect him a ton and like stuff like that is really, really important. Like if you feel like somebody can give you feedback or mentor you like it doesn't need to be like this contract that you sign forever. Um, and I've just been very fortunate to a lot of people have fallen into my lap is like, Hey, I, I think that like you could probably use some mentorship. Um, and I don't know if that means that I look like somebody that needs to be mentored all the time, but I think people see that like, Oh, like I see issues that you're running into that I've run into before. Let me help you get away from those issues. And that's really what true mentorship is about. And that's what I try to do when I mentor folks too, is like, just, avoid the obstacles, like not even avoid the obstacles. That's not fair to say. Don't let them like keep you down because you'll run into them. But like, again, just if they hit you, like fall face up and then just keep on walking, right?
0: It's important to get people in your life that can give you that advice and help you realize that some of these obstacles are fairly common. Right? It might seem very scary. And I remember when I first started my career, how many times I felt that wow, I am not a good product manager. Like, I do not know how to do this. I do not know how to do this other thing. And then talking to other people that have been doing that for years and way more years than I have ever done it, would say, that's okay. You're at the stage you're at. I was the same way. And that adds that level of calm, I guess. You're like, oh, that's okay. I'll learn. It's not as intimidating, I guess. Yeah, I think also one thing to add on top of
1: that, like, if you've ever worked with somebody who thinks they know everything and thinks that everything they do is right, like they're exhausting to work with, right? So I don't want to ever put myself in a position where I think I know everything. Because if I think I know everything, it means that I'm doing something substantially wrong. Um, And I think one of the things that I've been very vocal about throughout my career with managers and mentors and colleagues is like, please give me like the most like barbaric unsolicited feedback negative or positive at all times. I don't do very well with anecdotal feedback. Like, you know, I've heard, I I heard that you were doing X or I heard that you're hard to work with. Like I need like tangible, like pieces of like actual, like information for me to learn to grow. I figured that out by myself. So telling me like, Oh, like I've heard that you don't work well with others, which I've heard in my career. Um, And okay, well, this person, I don't need to know who they are, but can they give me an example, anonymized example of me not working well with them? And if the answer is like, well, no, they didn't give me any like uh, examples. I immediately discredit all of that. And that's not fair to the person that provided feedback. But to me, I can't grow with, you don't work well with others. I can't grow with that. If like, oh, Isaac, in this meeting, you came off as really abrasive because you really wanted to get your point across and you weren't listening to the other person. That's tangible feedback I can listen to. You don't work well with others or you don't listen. Like that's not feedback. That's just somebody complaining about working with you, which is fair because I might be hard to work with. Um, but I guess my point being with, with that rant is, like if you're going to provide feedback to somebody, make sure that the feedback you're giving them is tangible. And if you want feedback, make sure that the feedback that you're gathering is tangible in a way that you're going to actually change from. Like asking for feedback is one thing, like actually changing based on said feedback is very hard.
0: I think getting unfiltered feedback is also very hard because it's, you know, if you work with somebody, you don't want to tell it to their face that, you know, hey, actually, here's where you screwed up really bad. And then I had to go clean up the mess you created, right? Like that, that's just hard to say. And especially, especially in situations where, say, you want to give that feedback to your manager, the person that has a, you know, direct influence on your career trajectory, right? Like, how do you navigate those waters? It's hard.
1: Yeah, it's, well, I think it goes back to, you know, I made that comment about being able, uh, like, having friends as an adult, right? Like, there's these social contracts that exist that make things really awkward or really taboo to even talk about, you know, whether that's unsolicited feedback that might be negative, talking about wages, talking about, all sorts of different things that all of a sudden societies said like, Oh, we can't talk about these things in a public way because it's unsavory. And I think that's probably a backwards way of thinking. If you don't want to talk about those things, that's great personally. But if you tell other people, Oh, you can't talk like, don't give me feedback in a negative way. Cause I don't react very well to it. Like, okay. That just means I won't work with you ever again. Cause more than likely I will have negative feedback because I, I, I tend to, personally to find negativity in a lot of things. That's not bad. I'm aware of it. It's something that I'm trying to grow, but like, I, I I'll give you an example. Like I'm working at a new job. I've been a month and a half on the job and there's already people that I found out. It's like, oh man, I can't work with this person. Like it's hard working with this person. And I need to be able to completely step away and be like, okay, why is it hard for you to work with this person? Like, can you give them feedback? Like, even though you don't know who they are and, uh, I think I I sent a message today and I was like, I don't work well under these particular circumstances and there was no response. I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, I was probably a little too hot, but you know, now we all know. So so I think that's one of the things that's really important too is you have to have like mutual agreement that feedback is going to take place in a particular way. You know? So whether it's a mentor or a colleague or a manager, I know I'm ranting again, so sorry, Dan. It's, it's about, like making sure that the relationship is strong enough that whatever comes to it, like we're all adults, we're not doing something that's going to completely change how everybody on the planet operates in most cases. Um, and it's really, really important to realize that and kind of have some actuality with it because, and this is just me probably just grandizing, but I think a lot of people think they're way more important than they are, right? And that's It's okay to feel that you're important, but at the same time, like be grounded in the fact that other people might not think you're as
0: important as you think you are. You have to have alignment on feedback and the ability to be transparent with each other. And this is, I think, quite different from what I personally consider to be a cop-out when you have somebody, say, coming into a team and saying come to me with everything you want to say. My door is always open and they're, you know, seven levels above you. That just, it doesn't work this way because you're not, the door's not always open and nobody's going to give you unfiltered feedback with that kind of approach. But once you have that one-on-one trust where you can say, hey, Isaac, I work with you and I know we're going to be working a lot on this project and I'll tell you if things don't go well, but I expect the same in return. So if you feel that I'm not doing something right, tell me so I can correct that. As you
1: get farther in your career, I imagine it becomes probably less challenging because the gap is smaller. But if you're like two years in, and like a principal level engineer says, like, let's have a conversation and let's like, do, like, re- like I want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong, right? Like in a really, like a really positive way. Like that's terrifying, right? Because yeah, you, know, you know, being being young, like, I don't even know if I'm doing things the right way. Like, how am I supposed to tell you you're doing things the right way? That's why I thought it was always interesting. When I worked at Microsoft, like Satya would like have like into interns mentor him. And I'm like, that's, I could not imagine. Like I could not imagine like having a conversation with one of the most, you know, powerful people in tech. And like, he's expecting you to give him feedback on how he could be better. And it's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that personally. So I have a lot of empathy for people that have been in that because I imagine like the level of stress that comes into that. And who knows? It might be a very great conversation because he might just be very, very open and all that. But at least on the outside, I'm like, oh man, like no CEO like ever like actually like wants that feedback.
0: It's a big mental hurdle to overcome because again, thinking of my own Choose being an intern if somebody asked me to go to the ceo and give them feedback my first time should be this is going to be a very career limiting move
1: (laughs) yeah and i I think it also too might be a subtle difference in how the generations handle things um you and i are of a a similar generation right we're both millennials of, of of a kind and i think you know maybe the new generation they don't have that hang up like maybe they'll go straight to you know CEO of said company and say like, look, this is where you fail. Like maybe they just have, like they're empowered with that. And that's awesome. If that's like the the new generation is going to bring to the world. But me personally, like I'm just so worried about being judged or being uh, graded on what I say. Right. And I don't know if that's a, a thing with my generation or a thing with just my upbringing in general, but it's, it's very fascinating when you see like Young, like, and this is, and this is a tangential thing. Like I get really, I guess, curious when I'll come across like somebody on Twitter who has like a ton of followers and they're like 25 and they're in tech. And I'm like, how'd you get all those followers? Like, how did you do that? And like, it took me a long time to figure out. It's like, just there's this hustle culture that exists with like the new generation of people. Like they'll literally do whatever they want to get themselves out there. And that's what it is. I think people just want to work harder and they want to be treated fairly. And I think other generations, previous generations, they, they just want to, you know, they just want to fit in. And that's probably not a fair thing to say, but that's at least how I see things.
0: For some of that, there's also a degree of privilege where, right, where sometimes if you are an immigrant or from an underrepresented background, you've you know the the value, like I, I speaking for myself as an immigrant, that there's so many variables that come into play. Things like you know I depend on my employer for the visa. I depend on a lot of factors that if I lose this job, this is the end, right? This this is a hardship on me and my family. So at that point, you start kind of protecting that and trying not to rock the boat too much. I mean that's. That's spot
1: on. I think also one thing too, like about just speaking about privilege is like, I have all these biases that I didn't think I had, like obviously straight white guy. So like I have some privilege, but like, I don't see myself as that. And that's speaking, you know, I, I, I come from a really poor upbringing. I have, I've had to kind of live, you know, bought like on my own for a long time. And I just thought like, oh, okay, well I'm quote unquote woke. And then I would catch myself like having all these biases and I was like, that's, this is lame. Like, this is not the person who I think I am. And it's a huge part of the learning curve. It's like, yeah, like you're, you're an immigrant, like your company makes it so you can work at a particular location. Right? Like that's crazy to think about for somebody like me, who's more in the U S right. You know, or something as simple as like I have ADHD. Right. So if I don't, if i don't take a pill or if i have taken a pill and it's starting to wear off my experience your experience talking to me is substantially different right depending if my meds are kicking in or not and like those are things that i never even thought of until i was diagnosed like oh like yeah all these people they just probably just expect i'm assume i'm scatterbrained or or whatever but no at the end of the day like we all have all these things that you know nobody knows we have and I guess the really important part of recognizing your privilege is just being open to maybe understanding this person you're having a conversation with might not have the same privileges as you. And having that as like a foundational layer. And then just trying to learn by example over and over and over again.
0: Learn by example. We're getting to the hour, to the end of the hour. And I want to ask you one question that I ask of all my guests. What's one uncommon, impactful career advice that... You might have realized in an industry or you learned through someone that is not as obvious to somebody that maybe wants to follow in your footsteps. They want to work in marketing or maybe they want to become a developer. What was that? Well, I, I, I don't want to use the fall face up thing because I've used
1: that a few times. I think one thing that's really something that I've carried with me is that like, and this probably is lame, but like always thinking about doing the right thing right? Not the thing that makes the most sense, because sometimes the thing that makes the most sense is not the right thing. And that's a really hard thing for people to get around, right? Um, I I don't know if that's as unique to, you know, is unique for a lot of people, but at least for me initially, when my career aspirations, when I first started, I was get into tech, make money. That was like my career aspirations, right? Uh, And I made a lot of decisions that you know, sure, I was in tech and I was making money, but like, I wasn't doing the right thing for me. And sometimes it's really important to take a step back and go like, am I doing the right thing? Even though I'm getting all these accolades and all these things. And that's been really, really challenging throughout me for, you know, in tech and in my life in general is like, it doesn't always have to be success, right? I think, Focusing too much on success is a decrement to you, to what you, like how we grow as people. Focusing on the failures is is far more interesting in a positive way. How was that? Was that 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 good?
0: That was a very good one. Yeah. So make sure that you, and this kind of reminds me of the recent episode that I recorded with Chloe Shi, who was again, talking about answering your personal why. Why are you doing this? On an
1: unrelated note, like that was a great interview. So for the folks who haven't watched it or listened to it, please do. It's very, very insightful.
0: Link below. Thank you for the shout out, Isaac. So Isaac, for, uh, and speaking of shout outs, I want to make sure that people can follow you and learn about you and the work that you do. Where do they go? Yeah. So I'm, I, I
1: I definitely, I'm a bit of an attention junkie. So I'm on social media. I'm on uh uh, Twitch and Twitter and LinkedIn and GitHub. Isaac R Levin is where you can find me. Um, we talked a little bit earlier. I have a podcast as well called coffee and open source where I do live streams and, um, audio only podcasts, coffee and Open source.com. You'll find me if you, if you're looking for me, you're going to find me. And, uh, yeah, I, I welcome all the conversations, even if they're about really ridiculous things, it doesn't always have to be about tech.
0: Excellent. Isaac, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Jen, for
1: having me. This was amazing.